Morning, everyone. Congratulate you all for getting here on time. You had an extra hour, I suppose. Uh, we'll test you again in the fall or in the spring and see how you do. Uh, but it's a glorious day uh, to be here and worship with, the, uh, with you before the Lord. And we're going to continue our study this week in uh, the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. We have this and two more weeks to go before we uh, begin our Advent series. So uh, looking forward to finishing Ezra, then we'll start Nehemiah in the new year. Uh, and today's message is called Reverence, Ezra chapter 7 uh, and 8. We'll, we'll squeeze it all in. Uh, so before we uh, go and get into the Word, uh, let's ask the Lord for help. Uh, Lord, we just thank you uh, for the opportunity to gather here this morning as, as your children. Uh, Lord, we love you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and help us with the Word this morning as we uh, figure out how to apply these things to our lives, Lord, with the Spirit's help. We ask uh, that we would just ask how the Word can make us more Christ-like today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, last Sunday, uh, October 31st, was known as Reformation Sunday, right? Uh, it's the day that we uh, remember that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses uh, to the church door at Wittenberg in Germany in uh, 1517, so that's 504 years ago now. Uh, and the reason he did that was because the medieval church had heaped a whole bunch of do's and don'ts uh, layered on top of the Bible uh, so that the, the, the Bible, the gospel message, had essentially been lost. And, and the priests of the day uh, claimed equal authority with the Bible. The church claimed equal authority with the Bible. And since the common people couldn't read the Bible because it was written in Latin, uh, they were uh, completely reliant on the priests uh, to teach them. And uh, abuses over those centuries became rampant. And so it took a man like Martin Luther, uh, a serious man, uh, a man committed to the word and to the scriptures, uh, a man who revered God uh, to recover the simple gospel message. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And out of the Reformation, uh, we got, we are saved by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, by Christ alone. And back to the scriptures was the rallying cry of the Reformation. And we got the term sola scriptura. Uh, by the scriptures alone means that scripture is authoritative uh, for the faith and the practice of a Christian. Well, 2,000 years before Luther lived a man named Ezra, another serious man, uh, a man who was committed to reverence for God and the love of his word. And like Luther, he studied the Bible, he practiced the Bible, and he taught the Bible. Uh, he was a priest, he was a scribe, he was a man who was well-versed in the scriptures. And he is the man who led the second wave of exiles back to Israel uh, from Babylon. Now remember we talked about in the beginning that there were three waves of exiles who came back. And the first wave came with Zerubbabel in 538 BC. And we've been talking about that in chapters 1 through 6. That tells of the story of Zerubbabel's return, uh, their eagerness to build the altar. They started with the temple, uh, then they got lax in the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah come and, and prophesy in 520. They get busy again building the temple, and the temple is completed in 515 BC. Now, during those that time, the sacrificial system was reinstituted, observance of the feasts was reinstituted again, the people were getting right with God, observing uh, his laws and his feasts and his sacrifices. It's not in here until uh, Ezra chapter 7 now, where Ezra himself 
finally personally enters the story. He wrote the book. He's writing from a historical standpoint back years ago when he's talking about Zerubbabel's temple. Now he's talking about what happened in his own lifetime. So now it's 458 BC. Uh, 57 years have passed now between the beginning of chapter uh, 7 and the end of chapter 6. So that's a gap of time that has happened since the end of chapter uh, 6. And in, in those intervening years, uh, uh, Cyrus had passed on, Xerxes had assumed the throne. Uh, those were the days of, of Esther. The events of Esther happened 482 to 473. Now Esther, or I'm sorry, uh, Xerxes has passed on, and now Artaxerxes, his son, is king, and it's 458 BC. Now, we don't know a whole lot about what happened in Jerusalem in those intervening years. The book of Esther happened in Persia. Uh, what we do know about Jerusalem is that they had become lax in observing God's laws. They become disobedient. Uh, but Ezra doesn't know that yet. He won't find that out until he gets there, what exactly is happening in Jerusalem. So in chapters 7 to 8, which we'll cover today, these are about Ezra's return with the second wave of exiles who were going to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so what we're going to cover today is Ezra's decision to return and then his journey back to Jerusalem. And the most important thing that I want us to, to get from, from the message today is what was read to us this morning. This is another key ingredient uh, for any nation that has drifted from God, like our nation has. Uh, Ezra studied the word. He practiced the word, and he taught the word. That's chapter 7, verse 10. Uh, so in short, Ezra revered God, because these are all ways that we show our reverence for God. Reverence is, is honor, uh, respect, love, admiration that we feel inwardly toward God and then express outwardly toward God through worship. Uh, and so uh, because of God's awesome power uh, and his majesty, he deserves our very best worship. He deserves our reverence. And the Bible records reverence as the automatic response of people. Whenever in the, they're, in the, they're in the presence of the Lord, uh, they hit the deck, right? They know they're in the presence of Almighty God. Uh, Moses, uh, a prime example. But this idea of reverence for God started with God, right? He is the one who told them, uh, I am the Lord your God. Uh, take off your sandals because the place you are standing is holy ground. And he gave Moses uh, the law uh, with all these rituals and sacrifices uh, related to purity, holiness, and worship, uh, telling them how they ought to worship uh, the Lord God. And, and Ezra was a man who pursued reverence for God. He was all about reverence for God. And so a nation that wants to pursue God, a nation that is interested in revival, uh, its people, its church is going to revere God uh, by following Ezra's example. And we'll see that as we go. But the first thing I want to show you is that Ezra was a very strong leader. Uh, and he, he, he was a man to be followed because of his example. And part of what made him a strong leader was his lineage. He, he had the pedigree to be a strong leader. So we're going to read the first seven verses of uh, Ezra chapter 7, and we'll see if I can get through this without botching it too bad. See, people get upset when I assign them names to uh, read during the welcome, uh, so now I've taken that on myself. So here we go. So I never ask you to do anything I won't do myself. See, so now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra went up to Jerusalem. Ezra was the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. 
I give myself about a 90. Not too bad. <laughs> so this Ezra, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. All right, so here is the passage where Ezra's talking about his lineage and, and what he's planning to do. Uh, so after these things, verse 1 means after all the events of chapters 1 through 6, uh, which we've already talked about. As I mentioned, 57 years had passed now. Ezra's coming with a second wave. And so what I want to do is just point out three things from these verses. And the first thing was this, that Ezra was able to trace his priestly lineage all the way back through Zadok, through Phinehas, and to Aaron. Uh, that's a veritable hall of fame of the priests of Israel and, and uh, Ezra was able to, to trace his lineage back through them. So that's a significant claim to authority. Uh, Ezra had it because of his lineage. Uh, but, you know, people are not going to follow uh, other people just because of their lineage necessarily. Uh, the person claiming authority has to have some kind of substance of his own, right? Like many of you may have worked for companies where uh, the boss uh, appoints his son to some high position. And, uh, you know, if he's a clown, nobody's really going to follow him, right? He's got to have a good education, good uh, credentials, good abilities of his own, or nobody is going to take him seriously. So Ezra had this lineage, but he also uh, had credentials. So the first thing, lineage, yes, but the second thing, credentials. And that's what we see uh, when we uh, think about Ezra, because he was not only had this lineage, but he was also, the second thing I want to show you is that Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law. The Hebrew word for scribe can mean a secretary or a clerk, and he probably held a position like that in Artaxerxes' government. That's why he was such a higher-up. That's why he was able to have the king's ear and be able to get permission to go back. Uh, so that's a pretty high-ranking position and probably a pretty comfortable position. So we ought to credit Ezra for being willing to leave that position and go back to Jerusalem. Uh, but the word can also be translated as a teacher. Uh, and so this, this word came to mean one who could teach the law, one who could study it, interpret it, uh, and who could copy scripture. Uh, that's what Ezra was. And so he's got lineage, but he's also got credentials because there is no substitute for actual hard work, for putting in the time and the study and the effort to become well-versed in the scriptures. So Ezra knew the law. And he was skilled in it. And, and you, know, you spend five minutes with Ezra and you know that this is a man of substance. This is not some lackey. He's, he's a man with credentials. And so uh, he's, he's got that too. He's got lineage. He's got credentials. And the third thing I want us to notice <coughs> is that God's, uh, is God's continued sovereignty over the events of Ezra. The king granted Ezra all that he wanted. And why? It's because the hand of the Lord, his God, was with him. Now, we're going to see that phrase uh, in our passage today several times, and we're going to see it throughout the book of Ezra and ne Nehemiah. And so what we need to see is that the work only succeeded because the Lord was in it. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's, that's life as Ezra understood it. Uh, God, if he's in it, this thing will succeed. So that's our introduction to Ezra the man. Lineage, credentials, and recognizes God's sovereignty over all these events. Now let's talk about Ezra's mission. Um, <clears throat> he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. 
For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had firmly resolved to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So what we have in verses 8 and 9 are just a summary of everything that happens in chapters 7 and 8. Um, He left Babylon, he came to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, he arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month. So it took them four months to make this journey uh, from Babylon, uh, 900 miles through dangerous and uncharted wilderness to return to Jerusalem. And again, we see that he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was on him. Now, the rest of chapter 7 and 8 just merely fill in the details of how he returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, including Artaxerxes' decree that allowed him to come back, uh, Ezra's preparation for the journey, how the Lord blessed him on the way, and those who returned. But before we get to chapter 7 and 8 and all the fine points of the details of, of how they came back, I want us to dig into chapter or uh, verse 10 a little bit here, <clears throat> because here we see three things uh, that anyone uh, who is revering the Lord and is serious about a walk with the Lord uh, ought to be doing. We study the word, we practice the word, and we teach the word. And I think these are the necessary ingredients to uh, not just personal, but societal revival. If we want to see revival in our land, these are the things that are going to be the anchors and the cornerstones. And I think that we Christians ought to be engaged in all three. So to study the word means uh, that, that we're in it, we're, we're immersed in it, and, and this requires desire to do it and requires discipline. And the only way to, to know the word is to study it. There are no shortcuts, but you know, if we love the word, this isn't a burden to us, right? This is a joy to spend our time studying the word. It's our heart's desire to know the word of the Lord better. And with so many counterfeit gospels in the world today, we would be well advised to know the word and what it says. Because, you know, let's face it, your average man on the street doesn't read the Bible. Uh, If you asked him what the gospel is, he would not be able to tell you what the gospel is. So uh, what hope does the world have without Christians who are able to articulate the gospel and tell them uh, what the Bible says? Now, I know among this body, we are a faithful body of believers. Uh, I don't think you need me to tell you that you need to be in the Word. I I think you know that, and I think, uh, by and large, you are in the Word because uh, you know how important it is. Uh, If for some reason you're not, if you've fallen out of the habit, you know that that the Lord speaks to us through His Word, and the Holy Spirit prompts us through the Word Uh, to understand the word and to grow spiritually. But Ezra dedicated his life to the study of God's word, and he was prepared. And when he got to Jerusalem, I mean, he's going to find a mess when he gets to Jerusalem. They had fallen away again in such a short period of time, uh, and we'll see that next week. But Ezra knew what to do because he was in the word, and by it he had acquired spiritual discernment that allowed him to lead these people and know what to do. So we need to study God's word uh, and know what it says so that we will know what to do in our times of of crisis. So study the word. The next thing we need to do is practice the word. Uh, If we know the word, uh, we ought to do what it says, right? But if we know the word and and we don't do what it says, then our knowledge is worthless, right? It's just a bunch of clanging gongs, right? Empty symbols. It doesn't mean anything. We need to study the word so that we are transformed by it. 
And I think that there's really nothing more damaging to Christianity uh, than people who actually know the word, you know, scholars who hold themselves out uh, as people who know the word and then lead people astray, like the Bart Ehrmans of the world, right, who know the word uh, and then twist it in, in such a way that, that they lead people away from it. Or even worse, if they get caught in some kind of public scandal when they hold themselves out as, as knowers of the word, but then not doers of the word. Anybody here been listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Anybody listening to that? Not too many of you. Um, you ought to check it out. It's, it's really very interesting. Uh, it's about what happens when, when the leader of a church uh, knows the word, but then doesn't obey it. Uh, Mars Hill was a church in Seattle. It, it was planted by a guy named Mark Driscoll and a couple of other guys. And he became uh, this, this mega church pastor while still in his 20s. Uh, and he was very brash and he was outspoken. This is in the early 2000s, talking about masculinity and gender. Uh, before everybody was talking about masculinity and gender, uh, he was talking about it. Uh, and the church exploded in growth. Thousands of people were flocking to this church. And in just a couple of years, they had uh, you know, 10,000 plus uh, in attendance and members of the church. But Driscoll was a, a prideful man, and this was exposed by his celebrity and his popularity. All of this went to his head, and, and there are stories in the podcast about uh, emotional abuse and abuse of power that, that led to his downfall and the emotional carnage that his church members all experienced when the elder board had to fire him caused the entire church to collapse. So imagine thousands of members now uh, without a church home because of the sin, the pride of, of one man. Uh, and that's a dangerous thing uh, when, you, when you know the word, but you don't do the word. And the podcast also references several other uh, megachurch celebrities like Bill Hybels and James McDonald and Ravi Zacharias, all people who know the word, but, but didn't do the word. And it led to uh, a terrible downfall because they failed at critical points. Now, James, who I've been referencing in these, uh, these phrases, the, the brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James, says, be not just hearers of the word, be doers of the word. So knowing the word is the first step, right? We have to know the word to do the word, but we have to take the second step. We have to be doers of the word because it's the doing of the word that changes the world, not just the knowing of the word. It's the doing of the word that changes the world. Now for myself, I'm thankful for a strong elder board who's going to hold me accountable so I never get too big for my britches and, and we have a, a problem like we have in other churches uh, when people don't obey the word. Uh, but we all need to have people in our lives who are going to hold us accountable, uh, who are able to speak truth into our lives. It's not just pastors and elder boards who need this. We all need this kind of accountability because there's nothing more damaging when people hold themselves out as knowing the word, excuse me, knowing the word and then fail to keep it. Okay, so we study the word, we practice the word, and then we need to teach the word. And Ezra was a teacher. Uh, tra Jew Jewish tradition holds that, that Ezra knew the scriptures by heart. Can you imagine? Now, he doesn't have the whole Bible that we have. He's only probably talking about the Pentateuch at this point. But still, uh, that's a lot to memorize. And Ezra apparently knew it all. And so his knowledge, his obedience, and, and the substance of this man gave him a platform to teach. And that's what happens when the word of God gets into us and transforms us and we become attractive uh, to people who want to know what makes us different. 
Now, Ezra was a teacher uh, who taught the entire masses of Israel, and that's one way to teach, but there are lots of ways to teach. We teach one-on-one, -on -one, we teach in discipling relationships, we teach unbelievers who don't know the gospel, we teach our children, uh, our children teach us. Uh, there are lots of ways uh, to be a teacher. Uh, it can just be the result of being a parent or a grandparent or a friend. We're going to have opportunities to preach and to teach. But this is the heart of who Ezra was. He was a man who was steeped in the scriptures, who obeyed the scriptures, but it was his heart's desire to teach the scriptures as well. And we see that, that Ezra firmly resolved, he firmly set his heart on studying the word, practicing it, and teaching it. And, and if we have hearts like that, brothers and sisters, we will make a difference in the world. Uh, we may even start a revival. That's what can happen if we are immersed in the word and we are committed to obeying it and to teaching it as well. All right, now let's look at the rest of chapters 7 and 8. We're going to fly over. We won't read all of it, uh, but we'll point out the major themes of these verses. So uh, starting with verses 11 to 26, this is Artaxerxes' decree that gives Ezra uh, permission to go back to uh, Israel from Babylon. So here's the beginning of the commission, verse 11. Now this is the copy of the letter which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. So Ezra again introducing his credentials and now going to give the decree. Now without reading the entire decree, let me just summarize it for you. Uh, verse 13 says that uh, Artaxerxes gave them permission to go back. Uh, verses 14 and, uh, through 16, he gives them silver and gold uh, to take with them, and he allows them to go to Babylon and get more silver and gold if that's what they need. He authorized them to buy the animals that they would need to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. And God authorized Ezra to make decisions according to the will of God. Then he gave them even more utensils to take back with them, and last, he ordered that the priests and Levites not be required to pay tax so as not to bring wrath, uh, the wrath of God, on Artaxerxes' kingdom. Uh, so this is a lot that uh, Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, right? It's money, it's tax exemptions, uh, it's freedom to go back, it's livestock. So why would Artaxerxes give Ezra all this power? Why is it that, that he would get behind a mission such as this? Well, it helps to have a little bit of background about what was going on at the time. Uh, <clears throat> the Persian Empire had reached its peak under Darius. Now, that was about 520 BC, so about 60 years uh, from before the time of Ezra's return here. Uh, that was the peak of the Persian Empire. Uh, Xerxes uh, followed after Darius, and the kingdom started to weaken during that time. Uh, uh, Xerxes had lost a couple of key battles, he had lost some territory, uh, and the, the empire was shrinking. By the time Artaxerxes gets the throne, it's, it's, a, it's a shrinking empire, it's an empire in decline. Uh, and so uh, when we read these verses from, about Artaxerxes, we may think that you know, he's a kind and benevolent king, but, but that's not who Artaxerxes was. Uh, in fact, uh, he was the younger son of Xerxes, and how do you think that he became the king? Well, he killed his older brother, right? That's how you become the king. Uh, so that's what put him in line uh, to be the king of, uh, of Persia. And so we have to look at Artaxerxes' actions not as some kind, benevolent gesture, but as a political move. Uh, he's trying to protect his dwindling empire, to protect the western border out there in Israel. And at the same time, we recognize, as Ezra did, that he is still under the sovereign hand of God. 
So in verses 25 to 26, we see that Artaxerxes actually wants something from Ezra in return for this generosity. He says, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges, so that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the Euphrates River, that is, all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. And whoever does not comply with the law of your God and the law of the king, judgment is to be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of property or for imprisonment. And so uh, Ezra is commissioned by Artaxerxes, go out there, restore, restore law and order out there, protect that boundary. And so uh, Ezra gets uh, authority uh, to teach the people who don't know the laws. And then he gives Ezra this uh, enormous power to enforce the laws, even up to and including the death penalty. So, you know, there's no greater authority than that. That's the same authority that Artaxerxes would have had. And so Artaxerxes gives Ezra all this power. And Ezra, of course, is grateful to the king for it. But he recognizes that it's the sovereignty of God that has made this all happen. And so as Ezra begins uh, to prepare to journey back to Jerusalem, uh, he offers this prayer of thanksgiving in verses 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to glorify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended favor to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officials. So I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God that was upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So isn't it fascinating that God can use anything, including people, including world leaders, including world events and conflicts between empires to accomplish whatever his mission is. So God wanted Ezra back in the land, and, and as we'll see in chapter 9, uh, Ezra's going to find out why uh, he was asked to go back to the land to straighten things out. But here, a God, or Ezra recognized God's sovereignty in all of these events, uh, including the king, and Ezra's response is reverence. It's reverence for God. There's nothing else in Ezra's mind that could explain why the king would be so favorably disposed to him and his Jewish people and his mission to go back to Israel. And again, in verse 28, Ezra attributed his success to the fact that the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And that's the repeated refrain that we see over and over again in these two chapters. Now, jumping into chapter 8, the first 14 verses are a list of people who returned with Ezra. There's uh, 1,496 males mentioned there. I counted them. And uh, the, the total number, though, of uh, returning exiles, uh, the 1,496 were just males. Uh, so probably 7,000 or so if, if Ezra had included women and children on the list. Uh, so it's a, pretty, it's a fairly sizable group. Now, in verses 15 to 20, uh, we see that Ezra's plan was to gather everyone at a place called Ahava. Now, we don't know where biblical Ahava is, but it's, it's a tributary that runs into the Euphrates River somewhere near Babylon. So there was a plain around there, and Ezra was going to gather everybody there. They were going to make their preparations to leave, and they were, then they were going to go uh, from that place. 
But when Ezra gathered everybody there, he noticed that there were no Levites there. Well, that's a problem. Levites are very important. They, they teach the word, they serve in the temple, uh, and th they were needed in this reestablished community. So Ezra has to put the trip on hold, on hold at least, uh, and he's got to figure out what to do about this. So apparently the Levites had grown accustomed to life in Babylon. They were comfortable. They didn't want to go back to uh, to Israel, and so now Ezra has to recruit some Levites to come. And so in verses 18 to 20, again we read, the good hand of the Lord was on Ezra uh, because he was able to recruit 38 Levites to come and 220 temple servants to come also uh, to serve in the uh, rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. So now, once he's regathered everyone, including these Levites and temple servants, they're late to the party at Ahava. Now, he's got, now that he's got everyone there, now he can begin preparations in earnest. And so the first thing that he does is he pro uh, proclaims a fast. That's verses 21 to 23. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava to humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who abandoned him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our pleading. Well, Ezra was the right man for the job, right? Uh, he knew that everything depended on the Lord. So he asked the Lord for wisdom and for favor, and he did that with prayer and fasting. And, and, and that shows reverence. It shows a commitment to the Lord God. And it seems throughout the book here that there is a direct correlation between a reverence and worship of the Lord and, and God's hand of blessing being upon them. And so... Uh, Ezra, he, he's, he's made this statement to the king now, right? He said, the Lord will protect us and he won't protect those who are against him. So now Ezra's gotta, he's got to follow his own words, right? He might have wanted to ask for a guard, but now that he said what he said, uh, he feels like he can't ask the king for a guard. He's got to trust the Lord to protect. And uh, what Ezra finds out is that God is mighty to save, mighty to protect. Uh, he was carrying enormous wealth from Babylon, uh, when he left Babylon and went to Israel, uh, he was in great danger because there were bandits hiding in the hills who were uh, seeking to rob unsuspecting caravans. And so Ezra needed the hand of God's protection, and Ezra listened to their pleading, uh, and Ezra received wisdom from God about how to transport all this wealth and how to account for it. So speaking about Ezra's wisdom, in verses 24 to 30, Ezra chooses 12 leading priests and 12 other very well-respected men, and he weighed out 650 talents of silver, 100 talents of gold, and 100 talents worth of other utensils that Artaxerxes had given them to take back. Now, to, to put a value on it, to try and use terms that we can understand, uh, that's 25 tons of silver. A ton is 2,000 pounds, so do the math. That's a lot of silver. That's three and three quarters tons of gold, three and three quarter tons of utensils. So they had to obviously load this up on donkeys or whatever other beasts of burden they had, get this, all this treasure back to uh, Israel. Now, obviously, that would make them a, a pretty good target, right? I mean, if you happened upon this caravan uh, with all of that wealth, uh, they would be a, a pretty good target. This is millions and millions of dollars. So Ezra depends on God to get them there safely. And that's a problem from the outside, right? The bandits are people from the outside. 
but Ezra also recognizes the sinful hearts of human beings, right? So now he's got to put in a plan to be sure that all of this silver and gold doesn't mysteriously disappear uh, on the way by the people who were carrying it, right? So he puts a plan into effect to hold people accountable for that. Uh, he was wise to delegate the authority to, to, to keep this stuff safe, but he also had a system in place. He weighed out the gold and the silver before he gave it to them. And he said, I'm going to weigh this stuff when we go back to Israel, when we get there. So our numbers better match or you guys are all going to be in trouble. And so that's what he did. He put this system into place and now they're ready to go. So they finally leave Ahava on the 12th day of the first month. Uh, and again, verse 31, the hand of the Lord, their God was upon them. And so there were no bandits, there were no attacks. They land safely in Jerusalem. And when Ezra weighed out the money again, it was all there exactly uh, as it was supposed to be. And so his system of holding people accountable worked. And what they did what they got when they got there was they worshiped the Lord by offering sacrifices. 12 bulls, one for each of the tribes, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 goats. Uh, so they're praising the Lord first, they're, they're worshiping him. And then they deliver the king's edict to all the local governors, the satraps, the administrators uh, in the kingdom, uh, and they also supported the people of God. So throughout this journey, from the king's edict, uh, Artaxerxes' decree, all the way through Ezra's arrival, this repeated refrain is that the hand of the Lord their God was on them. And what we see is that God is mighty to save and he loves to work through a people who is repentant and who reveres the Lord and who are eagerly seeking after him. So that's chapters seven and eight. Let's think about some applications as we wind it down. And the first thing we learn is that the people of God revere him by studying, practicing, and teaching the word. A great model for this is what we see in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, probably the best known command of reverence is from Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. It's called the Shema because the first word in it is, is here, which is the Hebrew word for Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's reverence, right? When we love the Lord our God with all our minds, all our soul, all our strength. Now, how we do it, the practical outworking of that for Ezra is to study the word, it's to teach the word, practice the word. Uh, and so uh, Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment was, what did he do? He cited the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. So studying, practicing, and teaching are just ways that we love the Lord our God with all our mind, soul, and strength. It requires all of us, though, all, every part of us, every part of our being to do this. It requires commitment. And when we do it, we're showing that we revere the Lord, that we are committed to him. And uh, sometimes the good hand of the Lord is on us when we show that we are eager uh, to love him that way. So people of uh, God revere him by studying, practicing, and teaching the word. They also revere him by prayer and fasting. These are also acts of worship. These are spiritual disciplines by which we show the Lord that we are committed to him, that we revere him. And I think God notices hearts that are, that are turned to him and committed to him in practicing these disciplines. So Ezra, uh, he prayed and he proclaimed a fast. Uh, these are things that, that Christians probably ought to be involved in. Obviously prayer, obviously fasting. 
but you know, how you work that out for yourself, that's up to you. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you you need to fast you know, twice a week for eight hours a, a, a day. That's not my place to tell you that at all. And I also don't want this to sound like uh, it's you do this and God gives you that in some kind of legalistic formula that we draw up. It's between you and the Lord to decide what is right. But these disciplines of prayer and fasting show our commitment to him. So we revere him by prayer and fasting. And we also revere him by trusting him to save and protect. The hand of the Lord, uh, their God, was on them. Uh, They were with them. Ezra carried tons of gold, tons of silver and utensils through this bandit-infested wilderness, trusting only God to get them through because he had already expressed his trust in God to the king. And so God wanted them in Jerusalem, and he figured out a way to get them there safely. And so as Christians, we are trusting God too, right? Uh, we, we want to go to heaven. And Jesus promised that, that uh, everyone who believes in me, I will raise up on the last day. So, so we are trusting Jesus to get us home too. And still, that doesn't mean that we're not going to have trouble along the way, right? Ezra was fortunate uh, because by the word of the Lord, uh, by his uh, sovereign protection, uh, he didn't face any trouble on the way to Jerusalem. But boy, is he going to face some trouble in Jerusalem. And our lives are not going to be trouble-free, right? All of you who have been Christians for any length of time know that life is not trouble-free. We are going to have trouble on the way, but we can trust that God will bring us home safely to heaven because he's mighty to save. His hand, uh, the hand of the Lord is on all of those whom he has chosen and whom he loves. Now, I've been talking a lot about revival in this series, and, and I want to be sure that, that uh, I've properly attributed revival to God. Uh, revival is something that, that happens sovereignly when the Holy Spirit uh, activates us. He does something in us to want to study, practice, and teach the Word. And, and that's our response to when the Holy Spirit is doing something in us. Uh, and this is how revival begins. It begins with a, with a prompting from the Holy Spirit. And maybe God is starting a revival in our congregation, who knows, by, by having us dig into the Word week after week. And I, I pray that we're responding with a desire to worship Him more and rededicate ourselves to Him more. And if He does this among a body of believers like us, who's to say uh, what effect we can have on the world? If God does this in enough people, revival catches fire and it spreads like crazy. And we've seen it several times in, in just American history. It can happen. And so uh, we just have to be uh, eager to be used by God in that way. And we can look at all that's happening in the world uh, and we can say, well, you know, this is, this is Romans 1. This is God handing us over to, to the consequences of our sin. And I think that's right in some respect. But I also think that all that's happening in the world is something that God can use as an agent to spark revival. When we look around and see what's happening in the world and say, this is no good. We need to do something about it. We need to return to the Lord. We need to talk to people about God and let him use all of these circumstances as an agent of revival. When people are in desperate enough situation, that's when they're eager to listen to the Lord. So I pray that God uses all of this to show us our need for him. And may he use us to start a fire that spreads throughout the world. Amen. Lord God, we just lift these things up to you. Uh, We are a nation that's in desperate need of you, Lord, and we pray that we would be agents of revival. Lord, we pray that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit in in a new and special way uh, to awaken unbelievers and to give us a fresh filling that we might 
uh, be eager to study the word, to practice the word, to teach the word, and to be agents of revival in this country that's so desperate for it. Lord, we pray that uh, unbelievers would receive the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and that one would touch another as, as a flame spreads on a candle, Lord. We just pray that, that, that these things would happen as the gospel moves from one person to another, that revival would begin, and Lord, that your kingdom would be advanced in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.